let's go ahead and spend some time in the Word. Um, let's pray again. Father, here we are. And Lord, within all of us, the capacity to hear and understand and listen to you, Lord, kind of changes with the season, where we're at and what's going on. But as we're here right now, we're just asking that your, what you speak would go deep into our hearts and that you would cause us to see you and know you better through it. In Jesus' name, please. Amen. All right, so let's put up the slide. We're going to be looking at Psalm 116. And uh, I'm just going to go ahead and read it. And does anybody need a Bible, by the way, out there? Go ahead and raise your hands. We've got a free Bible for you if you need it. And let's read that. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore, I will call upon him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O oh Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. Just like that song we sang earlier. The Lord preserves the simple. And when I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. Next slide. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, and my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed, even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. So what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. And the final slide. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant and the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. Cool. So this particular song that's written by an unknown writer, some say it might have been David, it means the, it's one of the Hallel songs, which means it's one of the songs of praise. And it includes the Psalms 113, through Psalm 118. And these psalms or songs were chanted and or sung during Passover and certain other holidays. Jesus sang and chanted this song with his disciples the night he was betrayed. And this is why it's also called a messianic psalm because some of the language in this particular song goes beyond um, some of the author's experience alone. So we're going to look at this a little later, but right now I want to look at, out of this song, three character habits that we can grow in out of our relationship with God from this song. So let's look at the first slide. And one of the habits that we can develop and grow into, one of the character habits, is the habit of being thankful. So the, the, habit, the character habit of thankfulness Notice going back in some of the slides in verse 1, the singer's uh, love for God 
comes from because God heard his pleas. And in verse 5, he's thankful for how gracious God is, how right he is in his actions, and that God's full of mercy and loving kindness. In verse 7, he recognizes the Lord's abundant bounty, and he tells his soul, go back to your rest. Go back to this place of rest and peace. And that's something the women just got through, going through at the women's retreat, was entering into God's rest. In verse 14, being thankful resulted in him keeping his promises to God. And we read in verse 14 and 18 that even though he was in a bad place, he didn't blame God, but chose to offer up a sacrifice of thanksgiving there in verse 17. So out of everything that we're seeing here about thankfulness, it's counterculture. Because we see in our culture a lot of divisiveness, a lot of criticism, a lot of condemnation. But in God's economy, in God's culture, thankfulness is to be the name, the, the thing that the people of God represent or practice or do. When we choose to trust, to look and see God's deliverance with his goodness and giving thanks, we're putting down our propensity to complain against or criticize God when we're in hard and difficult times. Because, you know, honestly, when things go bad, I hear a lot of criticism about God, blaming God for this. But it's rare to hear why people are thankful for what God has done. So we're going to practice a little bit right now about being thankful. And so what I'd like you to do is, if you're in a little family group there, or with, if, if you're with friends, um, what I'd like you to do is get together real quick, and I want you to name one person or one thing that you're thankful for God for in your group. Now, if you've come alone and you don't feel like joining a group, that's fine. Just do that by yourself and thank God for that. For those of you that are on live feed, I encourage you to just spend some time being thankful and naming that off before the Lord, and then we'll come together again and we'll continue the message. So let's get together in a small group with your family or the friends next to you, or if you're by yourself, do that, and we'll get back, okay? I pray that we'll be able to, in practicing what we did this morning, that we'll be able to do that on an ongoing basis because out of our relationship with God, being thankful will cause our hearts to see all the goodness of God. And there's one thing I'm really thankful for is the birth of my new granddaughter. And there she is. Pretty sweet, huh? Well, of course, I'm not going to ask you to say, oh, yeah, for sure. But I'm prejudiced. Okay. Let's go to the next slide. We're going to look now at what we see in this particular song this writer sings about is the habit of communion. Notice uh, the next slide where he says... Do we have that next slide about, there we go. In, in verses 12 and 13, he says, What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call 
on the name of the Lord. Notice the singer is bringing up the idea of what can I give to God for all he's done to me? And his answer is, I've got to take the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. Remember, I mentioned earlier about Jesus singing this song with his disciples the night he was betrayed. And this song has language in it about the cords of death wrapping around him, being in a dark place, being trapped, going to die, being surrounded by his enemies, which is exactly what Jesus did later that night and the next day when he gave up his body and his blood for the whole world on the cross. But that very night after he sang this, he gave them, remember, bread and wine that was in the cup and said, this is my body and blood which is given for you to drink and eat. Now, to further understand what's going on here at the Last Supper, we need to look a little deeper at some of the background, or the backstory of John chapter 6. And if you remember, let's see, I lost my place there. And if you remember what's going on in John chapter 6 is that Jesus had miraculously fed 5,000 men along with a number of women and children. And after this occurs, he goes to the other side of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, but's followed by this large crowd that had been fed in this miracle. And when they find Jesus, they begin to ask him where he had gone. But Jesus said very clearly, you didn't follow me because of the miraculous signs you saw. You're following me because you were fed and are full. And then he proceeds to tell them, don't work for food that simply perishes, but work for the food that he endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. So this led to the question of the crowd, well, then what must we do to do the works of God? Let's go ahead and go to that song, the next slide there. And Jesus answered them in verse, 20, uh, verse 29, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Now, Jesus then goes on to describe in great detail what believing in him means. And he says later on in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And he says in verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. And if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give him, that I will give for the life of the world, is my flesh. Now, those are dramatic statements for just a mere man to say, and yet it has impact for us. Now, as Jesus goes on revealing who he is and what he's come for, this really begins to anger the crowd and causes them much confusion, to which Jesus then, instead of clarifying it or calming them down, declares in a more dramatic and shocking statement the next slide. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say unto you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on that last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is the true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, and I live because of the Father. So whoever 
feeds on me, he will also live because of me. Pretty incredible statement. John records that after Jesus made this statement, those who heard it said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Which it is, isn't it? The many who, there were many who followed him that left, even to the point where Jesus turns to the 12 disciples who were closest to him and said, will you also stop following me as well? To which Peter replied, who else would we go to? For you alone have the words of eternal life. And we believe and know that you're the Holy One of God. And so at this Last Supper, as Jesus is talking about his body and blood being given over for them and the whole world, he uses the cup and he uses the bread as symbols of who he is and what it means to live in him. So the disciples would have had a better understanding of this particular song that they would have sung, describing the cup of salvation being lifted up and calling on the name of the Lord, and would better understand and see what communion in him really meant, because they would remember what Jesus said back on that mountain in John 6, about his flesh and his blood being drink and food indeed. So when we take the bread and the cup, as often as we do it, it's an outward practice of our inward life that is feeding and drinking richly of the Lord Jesus as our very life. And so this process of communing with him at this level is a growth that only occurs as we spend time with him, taking him in like food and drink, exchanging our life for his life. And it's a communion with him. It's not just an action that we do maybe on a Sunday or during the week. It's a continual action of exchanging life for life. Granted, it's a deep mystery. And yet we grow in this process as he reveals the depth of this mystery. So, what can we really pay back to God for all he's done for us? We can never pay him back. So let's be like the psalmist. Let's receive more. Let's give our lives to him. So, we're going to have a time of communion right now. As a group, as a family, or as friends, or by yourself if you so choose, we're going to have a time of communion. We have uh, the implements up here and over here, on the back there, the back direct center, and off to my right over there. So we're going to take some time to have some communion. So if you want to get up, take the implements. You can, do it, you can take it back to your seat and do it together. But remember, what we're doing is representing what's going on inwardly as we're giving ourselves to him and feeding on him because we're so hungry and so thirsty and so needy. That's why we're taking communion because it's an act of what's going on inside. So let's go ahead and do that. So as, as we're taking communion and continuing to do that, the idea of believing in him is much more than just a mental ascent of something that someone did and yeah, I believe that Jesus died. Obviously, as Jesus describes this relationship with him, it's a very intimate, very deep and very full and mysterious kind of life exchange. And yet it's something that when we're doing what we're doing here, 
we're simply reaffirming the fact that this invisible God who came down in human form as we're celebrating this Christmas season came as a little child and became a man and then became less than a man on the cross to give up his very life so that we can live. And that's an amazing thing. I, I'm always blown away as I meditate on that and it causes me to make it very easy to love God and serve him because it isn't out of obligation or a religious duty. It's rather a life practice, which is full and rich. So let's go to the last slide. And as we do this and finish up, I'm going to have the, the band come up, worship band. And as they're coming up, in the rest of the psalm, there's this habit of character habit of growing into its calling on his name. Prayer, calling out, pleading. It has different expressions, doesn't it, in our humanity. But in this song, we see the singer in conflict. The distress of death is all around him, like it was if this was David who wrote this. David was constantly threatened in his early life by death by King Saul and others. And yet he shows deep trust in the song while humanly expressing to God with his feelings in verses 10 and 11, like, I'm oppressed, I'm humbled, I'm afflicted. He says, everyone, everyone's a liar. Everyone I know is a liar in his exasperation, which really means I can't trust anyone. And sometimes we find ourselves in that place. We found ourselves just literally being crushed and pressed all around. And that's okay to share that with God. It's okay to have these expressions. But if we remain there, we can become bitter. We can become very jaded. But we begin to see, as the, the singer goes on, three times in this particular song, he uses the term, I'm going to call on the name of the Lord. So what does the name of Yahweh or Jesus really personify? In Proverbs, it says a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. So from that we see that having a good reputation, having honor, having a trustful personage, if you want to call it that, is, has much more value than being rich. And so reading from the scripture, we begin to comprehend the depth of this person that we worship and what his name means. So I'm just going to read some things from scripture that says this, and some of this, some of this we've experienced in depth, some of it a lot less, but we're always growing in the knowledge of what his name means and what it means to call on that. He's holiness. He's the all-powerful one. He is love. God is love, and he defines love. He provides. He is peace, just and trustworthy. He's transcendent and all-knowing. He's the healer. He's sovereign and all-seeing. He sometimes is angry and yet full of grace. He's father. He's shepherd. He's counselor. Master and Lord. And then so much more does his name personify. So if we know him by experience and then begin to trust what he reveals about himself in the Bible, in his word, then we can call upon him. And so as we're singing this last song of, of worship, call out to him. 
Whatever that looks like. Are you in distress? Call out in your distress. If you're happy, call out in your happiness. Sing to him. And begin to grow in this process that no matter whether you're driving the car, no matter whether you're at home or you're at work, he's always near. His presence is there. And you can call on him and begin to deepen that relationship, develop the habit of calling on him. So let's do that. Let's all stand and we'll worship.